0: We're going to do something we don't do very often here at at the church. In my, I don't know, life here, a few decades, we've done this, I've been involved in four of them, and that is when we ordain somebody to to ministry, okay? Ordination is way different than somebody who's licensed to ministry, okay? We, We license, we have a lot of licensed ministers here, and licensing is basically us saying, yeah, you can go out and marry and bury and all that kind of stuff, but if you leave Big Valley Grace or you go on to something else in your life, the license doesn't go with you. In other words, it doesn't go to another church with you. Ordination is different. When you ordain somebody, it's saying, look, we see something in your life and you take that ordination with you everywhere you go. And yesterday at two o'clock, we had a really formal ordination gathering where there were pastors here from other churches, there are elders, I mean, it was a pretty weighty deal as we talked through the laying on of hands and in the Old Testament and what it meant, the laying on of hands during Jesus' ministry here on planet Earth, and the laying on of hands today in, 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 a, in the church's you know, time. I'm going to ask pastors, elders, if you're out there, come on up here also. And uh, it was just a great time, It's just unbelievable, about an hour and a half of Scott being there, his parents, you might know his parents, oh, one of his brothers, your other brother doesn't love you anymore, he <laughs> decided he, he wasn't coming. It was just really, really great, just unbelievable time. And uh, it, it's, it's pretty special, you don't get to this point unless really the pastors and the elders of this church see something in your life. We've been watching you for a while. We've, you know, had our eyeballs on you for a long, long time, and it, like, like years and years and years. Obviously, there's a whole lot of theological questions that they have to go through and all of that, but, but I'm telling you, it, it, it's really us having watched somebody's life for a long, long, long time. It's not something you just enter into lightly. And then one of the things you get to do is is after you know, the elders anoint him, we're going to do that in just a moment and pray, then they, they get to preach. They can preach their, their, their first sermon kind of a thing. And I think we got that backwards because we had to hear them preach first and then decide whether we want to you know, put the oil on them and all the, all the stuff. There's some pressure. We could always pull it back. Now, I guess when it's done, it's done, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, this is kind of a really special moment, and I want you to know you're in for a real treat, because he, he got to pick any topic he wanted to preach on, and uh, I thought it was really interesting, the you know, the choice, what the Lord had put on his heart, and I'm telling you, you're going to be blessed here, but Scott, I'm going to ask you if you would just take your knees here just for a moment, and I have some oil, nothing Nothing in this oil is going to make him a better man or a better preacher or whatever. The oil is just simply it reminds us of the one who, uh, who lives within us. Amen. It reminds us of where our power comes from. Amen. It reminds us where our wisdom comes from. The, the oil is just a reminder to us. It's something that helps us remember where our power and salvation and grace and all that comes from, okay, that, that's all this oil is, and so when I anoint him, we're just simply saying, hey, we're recognizing the one who has had his hand on your life that we've, that we've seen, and so Scott, it's an honor to anoint you in the name of the Father, and the Son And the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to ask all of you to stand up. And, man, let's put our hands towards him. Guys, let's gather around him. Ryan, why don't you come on over here, get close to me. And I'm going to have you, uh, you be the one that, that prays, okay? Heavenly Father God, I just, uh, Lord, I thank you for
1: Scott. Father, I thank you for his life. I thank you for his commitment and dedication to you, Lord. For the opportunity to uh, to ordain him, Lord, into your ministry for the rest of his life is just a, it's a fantastic opportunity, God. And we thank you uh, for this weekend. Father, we thank you for the ministry that he has had so far here at our church. God, I know the impact he's had on my family has been just dramatic and uh, what he does in our school and in the venue. And, and God, Scott is just a, a good man and a godly man. Father, we pray a blessing upon his life. Mm-hmm. Lord, we pray that his ministry is just very fruitful. Father, that he impacts your kingdom in a, in a tremendous way, Lord, and that uh, as he lives his life on a day-to-day basis, Lord, that he exudes Jesus and that he is able to bring forth your word into the lives of many, Lord, and is able to, through your power, God, change the lives of many. Mm-hmm. God, we thank you for him. We thank you for his ministry, and we uh, just thank you for all that you do for us. Yeah. We pray these things in your name
0: amen 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 hey would you appreciate Scott (laughs) now now here's the deal I'm going to put this down there and uh in case you mess up or you forget where you're at or you remember where your source comes from and don't don't blow this brother this is this is the big moment man I'm kidding man blessings bud Preach your guts out. Preach your guts out right now.
2: <laughs> well, this really is an awesome privilege. You guys can uh, be seated. It's awesome. Uh, I love our staff. Our, our elders and our pastors here are really incredible. And it really is a great, great honor for me this morning to get to unpack God's Word with us. And awesome to have my family here. And I'm just really thankful for their love and their support over all the years. We'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Zephaniah. And if you're not super familiar with it, don't be afraid to use that table of contents. There's no shame in a table of contents. That's what it's there for. Uh, But We're going to turn to a book that's maybe not super familiar, maybe not taught on a whole lot, uh, but I think it's a really great one and an important one that we can look at this morning. As you're turning there, I was thinking about January and New Year's, and people are always making resolutions. I'm sure many of you in this room may have made a New Year's resolution, things like Lose some weight, get more sleep, work less, spend more time with family, read your Bible more. Maybe it's we just need another vacation. Maybe that's the thing. But for a lot of people, they set out with every intent to keep those resolutions and to do those things, to accomplish those goals. But I read this this week, and maybe it's not a surprise, but researchers discovered that 25% of New Year's resolutions are abandoned in the very first week. 60% are gone within six months. And for most people who fail, the majority will continue to make the same resolutions year after year for a good 10 years until they've either given up or they finally break through and succeed. But I don't know about you, but when I look back on the past years of my life, And think about what were the best years. They really had nothing to do with me. The best years of my life weren't because of some goals that I accomplished. They weren't about things that I set out to do that I actually did. The best years of my life, and I would bet for you the best years of your life, are the years where we saw God at work. It was about the things that God did, the things that God accomplished. And so if you want to know, going forward, how to have a great 2020, how to make this year great, it's going to be by understanding who God is and what God is going to do. And I can't tell you with any certainty what God is going to do this year, but I do know that scripture gives us a picture of what God is going to do one day. And if we have that picture in the back of our mind, it helps us understand how to live here today, right now in a way that honors and pleases him. And so with that, we're going to be getting into the book of Zephaniah. But let me pray before we start that. Father, we thank you, Lord. We've been singing these great songs about your goodness to us. You're a good, good father. Lord, you're perfect in all of your ways. Lord, we want to seek to know you more, to love you more, and to follow you in a way that pleases and honors you and brings you glory. Father, would your spirit be at work within us today as we look at this text? Lord, would you be illuminating it? Would you shine a light on it that it makes sense to us? And would you motivate us and compel us to live it out? Father, we pray that you're with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. While well, as I was preparing, I was thinking about... What book of the Bible gives us a concise picture of what God is going to do? And I couldn't shake the book of Zephaniah. It just grabbed a hold of me, in particular, one verse. And I want to read that verse with you and see if it has the same effect on you that it had on me. So let's take a look at Zephaniah chapter 1 in verse 2. It says this, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord have a great morning, everybody. I'll see you later. I don't know about you, but that verse doesn't come across as the most encouraging piece of scripture, right? But it is so important and foundational to understand. And so we're going to back up and give some context first to this book, and then we'll dive in together. Zephaniah is a minor prophet, And the minor prophets were not called minor because they were less significant, but simply because the amount of pages they take up in your Bible is less than the others. And so the minor prophets are super important, but they're these really small books in your Bible. And when you think about reading the Old Testament, I think one of the things that I always like to think about is looking at it through the lens of Jesus. Because Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he's walking with these two followers and they don't realize that they're walking with Jesus. But it says that he takes the scriptures and starting with Moses and the prophets, he explained everything concerning himself. In other words, he was showing them all throughout the story of scripture, the things that pointed to him. And that's the lens, that's the mindset we should have with the Old Testament. In fact, with all of the Bible. We should have this understanding that Jesus is the main character, Amen. that he's the main point of every lesson, that he is the one on every page that the story is about. And so as we look at this passage in the Old Testament, let's be looking for where is Jesus at work in this story. So Zephaniah is a prophet, and the role of the prophets was to be God's spokesperson. Hebrews chapter one, verse one says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So throughout the history of the world, God has spoken in various different ways. And at this time, when Israel was ruled by kings, God used the prophets. There were these men of God that he spoke through to the kings and to the people. So that's who he is. And during this time, the primary message of the prophets was one of warning and repentance. Warning and repentance, these two things that go hand in hand. They often look to the future to demonstrate what God would do if the people did not turn to him. The warnings were given so that the people would rethink their decisions and turn back to him. So the idea was, They would give a warning. Here's what God is going to do if you do not turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. And unfortunately, time and time again, the people were rebellious and stubborn, and they didn't listen to the prophets. And so the things they warned about ended up coming true, ended up happening. Zephaniah He's the great-grandson of King Hezekiah. So he actually comes from this royal line. And King Hezekiah was known as this man of prayer. So you could just imagine the kind of family life he may have come from. But he's prophesying during the reign of King Josiah. And this is a fascinating time in Israel's history. King Josiah's reign was known as a time of reform. They were returning back to the scriptures. And there's this incredible story, and I'd encourage you to read it this week. It's in 2 Kings chapter 22. And the high priest comes to the king, and the high priest says, King, we found the book of the law. Now, it could be easy for that to just go in one ear and out the other, and you miss what just happened there. He said, we found the book of the law. In other words, we found what we had at that time of the Bible. We found it. Which means we didn't know where it was. Which means they weren't reading it. They weren't following it. They were not listening to the words of the Lord. It had been tucked away. And think about that. They they didn't have the Bible in a place where people were hearing it, reading it, and living it out. And so Josiah takes it and begins to read it. And the people weep. And they begin to actually understand what they've been missing out on. And they begin to implement it. But for them the Bible had become a piece of furniture in the house rather than a fixture in their hearts. And it makes me want to ask the question of you, where is your Bible? Is it in a place that it's gathering dust? Is it in a place where, I'm not sure last time I saw it, I think I left it here maybe, or is it in a place where it's being used, being poured through? Are you reading it, underlining it, making notes in it? Are you spending time in the word of God? So at this time in Israel, there was this return back to the Word of God, a return to Scripture, and it's in that context that Zephaniah is making these prophecies and speaking to to the people. And the importance here was not simply that they were reading it, but that they would live it out. And so as we look at this passage today, let's make sure we don't just read it to read it, but we read it so that we too can live it out. So as we go through it, The way I want to look at the text is simply by asking questions of it. For me, that's one of the best ways to study the Bible is simply asking questions because many times the Bible actually gives us the answer. And so we're going to ask a number of questions as we look through this together. But the first thing is Zephaniah is talking about this Old Testament concept of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And what is this? The day of the Lord refers to both an event and a time period. So it's not just one thing. It's actually a couple of things. It's an event and it's a time period. It describes an event which will happen in the future. So for Israel, it described an event that was later known as the Babylonian exile. It was this moment when God judged Israel for their sin. The Israelites had become uh, these people that were uh, breaking God's commandments They were worshiping other idols. They were doing all these things. And over and over again, the prophets warned them. If you continue down this path, this judgment, this day of the Lord is going to come. And it came. Babylon conquered them, and they were taken off into exile. So that was for them. But in a broader sense, there's this day of judgment coming, this day of the Lord coming for all of us, for the whole world. So it's a time period And it's a day of judgment and salvation. It's a day of both judgment and salvation. In other words, there's some bad news and there's some good news. So we're going to take a look at the bad news first. We're going to take a look at the judgment and see what it is that God is going to judge. So let's take a look at Zephaniah 1, starting again in verse 2. He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast, I will sweep away the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. What we see here is a reversal of creation. God is undoing and uncreating the things that he himself has made. And so we should ask the first question, why? Why is God doing this? And the answer is simple. It's because of the sin of mankind. Our sin has affected, it has tainted every single thing in all of creation. There is nothing that has gone unscathed. Everything has been touched by our sin. Romans 9 puts it this way. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So our sin has has touched everything. And this moment is coming when God is going to wipe it all away. God has already dealt with the problem of sin for us in sending his son. But there's a moment coming where he's going to deal with the presence of sin. There will be no more sin in this universe. So as for mankind there will be judgment. So what things will God judge? What things will he punish? And as we look at each one of these, we should realize if God is going to punish this, then we should do the opposite, right? If he's going to punish this, we should do the opposite. And so let's take a look at at these things. The first thing he's going to punish is idol worship. We see that in chapter one, verse four. And if God is going to punish idol worship, if that's the thing he doesn't want, then the thing he wants from us is loyalty. He wants us to be devoted to him. The first two of the Ten Commandments deal with this very issue of not having any other God before him, but being completely devoted to worship him alone. The second thing we see here is he's going to punish rebellion. And if God's going to punish rebellion, it means he desires from us obedience. He wants us to trust and to obey. When we pray the way that Jesus taught us, he said, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. the implication there is that in heaven, when God gives a command, when God speaks to an angel, that angel does what God says immediately. They carry it out in perfect obedience. His will is always done in heaven. And so we're praying that we would become obedient in the same way that we would do his will here on earth. The next thing God is going to punish is violence. Zephaniah 1.9. God desires then peace. He wants for us to be peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus himself is called the prince of peace. Next thing God is going to punish is complacency. Or you might use the word indifference. He looks at the people and he sees that they were apathetic. They didn't have a strong feeling or motivation one way or the other. And God desires from us that we would be passionate. That we'd passionately follow him and serve him and love him. Romans 12, 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. The next thing he's going to punish is sin. And you could probably take everything on this list and put it into that one thing. But anything that falls short of God's glory, anything that misses the mark, is sin. And God desires our holiness. He's given us his spirit to be at work in our lives, helping to transform us each day into the image of his son. He desires that we would be different from the world, that we would be holy. The next thing he's going to punish is pride. You see, God desires humility. Every time we sin, we are actually choosing pride. We're actually saying, I think I know better than God. I know he said, don't do this, but I think I have a better way. So I'm going to do it my way. And so we're choosing pride every time we choose to be disobedient to the word of the Lord. But he desires that we would be humble. That we would recognize our sin and recognize our need for him. And the last thing here is that he's going to punish stubbornness. You see, even once we realize our sin, there's still that issue of having to surrender to him. To recognize it, but then to do something about it and say, Lord, I need you. Over and over again, God warned the Israelites, but he called them a stiff-necked people because they were just stubborn in their sin. So he desires surrender. And the question is, have you surrendered to him? So if you just take this list, if you look at these, these things that God is going to judge, I wonder if you could take that list and just reflect on the past year and ask yourself, how do I measure up? Would I be guilty of any of these things? Because I guarantee all of us would say, yes, we're all guilty. And if you're a believer and you're guilty, we should be asking the question, why? Why do I still look like this? Why am I living in this pattern of sin? And again, it's an issue of surrender. But if you're not a believer, the Bible actually says you're standing condemned already. John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what will the day of judgment look like for those who have not believed? Let's take a look in chapter one down in verse 15. It says, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. You know, you never see these verses on coffee cups, do you? (laughs) You can't go down to Hobby Lobby and find some wall art with that passage on it. We like to use things like, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. We like things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We like things like faith, hope, and love. And those are all good things. They're all true things. But our picture, if that's all we know, if that's all we understand, is incomplete. We have to see the full picture of who God is and what he's going to do. I love the writing of C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis gives this beautiful picture of the Lord as a lion. And he says he's a good lion, but he's not tame. And you see what we try to do sometimes. We try to tame him. We try to put him in a box. We try and understand what we can of God, and and we limit him in that. And we need a bigger picture of who he is. So when you look at this passage, it seems pretty intense. But he's trying to make a point. This is the severity of God's judgment. And it's severe for a reason. What is that reason? Look in verse 18, the second part of the verse. It says, In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. When you think of the word jealous, we usually have a negative connotation to that word. We usually think about it as envy of of one person towards another person's things or uh, ideas like that. But we need to understand God is a jealous God in a positive way. He is jealous for you. He wants you and not just a part of you. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your life. Again, he wants you to surrender to him. So what will this judgment accomplish? What's he going to do through this? Look at chapter 2 verse 11. Says the Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. The day of the Lord will reveal God's power and his supremacy. His power and his supremacy. It's amazing. It says that he will famish the gods of the earth. Now, these aren't true gods. These aren't real gods. These are the inventions of human minds. Some might be the false gods of other religions. I've been able to do some mission work and travel to Asia and walk into temples and see people bowing down before idols and bringing physical sacrifices and laying them at the feet of these false gods. God is gonna show that he is more powerful because he is the only one and true God. When you think about the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt, the Egyptians worshipped all kinds of different gods. And each of the plagues of Egypt, each miracle that God performed, actually corresponds to one of their gods. So an example would be they believed in Ra, the sun god, and so God sends a plague of darkness. There was a god of the Nile, and God turned the Nile River to blood. Over and over again, God was showing that their made-up gods couldn't do anything, And that he was the one true God who held the world together. And so God is showing his power and supremacy. And not just to made up gods of other religions. But in our country we don't necessarily have a lot of that. We have a lot more of we've turned other things into idols. We've placed other things before God. We've made other things more important. And God is going to show that he is greater. So when will this happen? When will God carry out this judgment? Well, for ancient Israel, in part, it happened. We saw that the Babylonian exile happened. They were judged. They faced their punishment. But when will this happen for everyone else? When will this happen for the whole world? And the answer is when Jesus returns. But take a look in chapter one, verse 14. It says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. It's coming soon. Jesus said it like this in Revelation 22, verse 12. He said, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. The message of Revelation, if I could summarize it, is Jesus is coming soon. Be ready. He's coming soon. And so when he comes and this judgment happens, how can we possibly stand? If all of us are guilty, which we are, What is our hope? What's the good news in all of this? Well, again, back in chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, and I think this is the key to understanding this entire book. Verse 7 says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And then here's the key The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has consecrated his guests. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. In other words, it is our hope is in what God has accomplished. We are called to be silent because there's nothing we can do. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot dig ourselves out of the hole that we find ourselves in. It is all about what Jesus has done. God has prepared a sacrifice. What was the purpose of that sacrifice? The purpose, just like it was in the Old Testament, was to atone for sin, to pay the penalty for sin. What was that sacrifice? Jesus, his son. He went to the cross to pay for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserved. With that sacrifice, he has consecrated his guests. In other words, he has changed them. He has set them apart. He has made them his own. Each of us who have a relationship with Jesus, we have been seated at a table where we do not belong. But we're there because of his love for us. All of us are guilty of the very things that God will judge one day. But through Jesus, we are spared from that judgment. So how should we respond then to what God has accomplished? Zephaniah 2.3 says we should seek him. It says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you'll be hidden on the day of the Lord. So we should be seeking to be obedient, seeking to be righteous, seeking to be humble. But most of all, we're to seek the Lord. We're to seek Jesus Christ. But we just said that Jesus was crucified, that he died. How can we seek someone who is dead? But that's where the gospel comes in, because Jesus did not remain dead. Jesus rose. Jesus is alive. That's the message of the gospel. How do we receive the gospel. How do we receive the salvation that God has accomplished? Again, we're in the Old Testament. We're in the minor prophets, but I want you to see that the gospel is here, that it's pointing to Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 12, the second part of the verse it says, we must call upon the name of the Lord. That's our hope. That's how we receive salvation. It's calling on the name of the Lord. Romans ten thirteen says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple cry of faith. That's all it is. And how will that benefit us? In many ways. In many ways. Let's look all throughout chapter 3 at the different benefits that we receive when we place our faith in Christ. God will transform us. He gives us a new status. Verse 15 of chapter 3 says that he takes away our judgment. It says the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. In other words, we're guilty, but our guilt has been paid for. It says we'll receive honor and approval. Verse 11 says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you've rebelled against me. We will not be put to shame. We will be spared. We will worship him. We won't have the issue of idolatry. In verse 10, we see that we will worship we will finally worship him and him alone. Our priorities will be right. I had a mentor that used to say, if you wanna know what your priorities are, show me your calendar and I'll tell you what your priorities are. In other words, where, if, if you're saying my priority is my relationship with Jesus, where on your calendar is that showing up? Are you spending that time with him in his presence, reading his word, praying to him, worshiping him, Is that really a priority for you? Where does that show up in your life? But at this future moment, he will be our priority. Nothing else will get in the way. And we will all be humbled. We see that in verse 12. He says, I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. We will no longer suffer. Revelation says he will wipe away every tear. There's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness. The benefits go on and on. He actually says we'll be renowned and praised. In verse 20, we will be restored. Our bodies will be transformed. They won't be like these bodies. I had a student earlier this year ask me this question. They said, when we get to heaven, will there be a day when we die again? I thought that's a great question. I'm glad that you asked that. Because Jesus offers us eternal life. It goes on and on. There is no end. The new body that we will have is one that is imperishable. What we have right now is perishable. But that won't be the case in the future. Our new bodies will be glorified. And by them, we will glorify him. Take a look at verse 17 of chapter 3 says, the Lord, your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exult over you with loud singing. What a contrast. What a beautiful picture. The contrast between the wrath, the judgment, but here the salvation and the life. That's what God is gonna do. I'm going to invite Tim back up here and he's going to lead us in one more song as we close. But I want to summarize the story because the story of the Bible is that God created us. God watched us rebel. He saw our pride and our stubbornness. And there's a point in history coming, this day of the Lord, when God will come to judge the wicked. But God accomplished our salvation through Jesus. And God, through all of it, will get the glory, yes, he will. because the story is about him. If you want 2020 to be a great year, make it about him. Amen. I read a poem this week, and it goes like this. Dear Master, for this coming year, just one request I bring. I do not pray for happiness or any earthly thing. I do not ask to understand the way thou leadest me. But this I ask, teach me to do the thing that pleaseth thee. I want to know thy guiding voice, to walk with thee each day. Dear Master, make me swift to hear and ready to obey. And thus the year I now begin, a happy year will be, if I am seeking just to do the thing that pleaseth thee. He wants us to please him. He wants us to follow him. And scripture says, we cannot please God without faith. It begins there. It's the place of faith. It's the call of surrender to him. It's that moment of calling upon the name of the Lord. Would you live this year for him? Don't live like the person who will face judgment one day. Live as a consecrated guest of the king. And that starts with surrender. Not just once, but daily. He wants you. He's jealous for you. He wants every part of you. The question is, are you willing to give every part of yourself to him? We're gonna sing this song. It says, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Are you ready? Maybe you're here this morning. You, you haven't taken that step. You haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet. You haven't called upon the name of the Lord. I wanna encourage you. Have a conversation with him during this song and then go into the altar room after the service. Sit down with one of our leaders and have that conversation about what that means. But for those of you that would call yourself believers, maybe during this next song, you could take the challenge to examine yourself and ask the Lord to reveal Is there anything, God, that I haven't surrendered? Is there anything I'm still holding on to that I need to let go and turn over to you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have made a way. You are the way maker. You're a miracle worker, Lord. There is no one else like you. Father, we know that this day of the Lord is coming, this day when you return to judge the wicked. But Lord, you have given us the gift of your son. You've given us the gift of eternal life that we can stand. Lord, help us this year to live for you.